0: We all dream of escaping to a life in a sunny, peaceful island. Well, the people in those islands, it's a little bit different there. They're actually under a serious threat. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Myths serve a unique purpose. They solidify what we want to believe. And, of course, myths are so much easier to accept than actual reality, which can be troubling. If you think about it, we in the United States rely on myths of various sorts, from the so-called discovery of America to the so-called settling of the West. And as I was preparing for today's show about the uncomfortable reality of the particular effects of climate change on an area of the world that we rarely think about, low-lying island nations in the global south, a memory from my long ago childhood came up. My parents took me to a movie theater in 1958 where we saw South Pacific. I was entranced. It was a beautiful, truly Pacific dreamscape. And I remembered this song, though I did have to google the lyrics cuz a long time ago but this is what we northerners have pictured for so long here's some of the lyrics belly high may call you any night any day in your heart you'll hear it call you come away come away belly high will whisper on the wind on the sea here am i your special island mm-hmm. come to me come to me your own special hopes, your own special dreams. At a young age, I too caught that dream of a carefree, beautiful life on a sunny island paradise. Except that, well, as with the myth of the frontier, it wasn't ours. (laughs) Do we ever think about life on an island from the perspective of indigenous Pacific or black Caribbean islanders? Never mind the old romantic imperialist myth. The fact is, with climate change, the reality is that though we've largely been oblivious to the islands of the global south, it's time to sweep aside the dreamy fairy tales and recognize that life itself on those places is at risk of being swept away forever. That's the reality. That's not a myth. Climate change, yeah, it's something we all know about, but in low-lying island nations and cultures, it is an existential threat looming larger and sooner than we in the North are aware. Today's guest on Keeping Democracy Alive is Christina Gerhardt, who has a new book coming out soon called Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. And she says atlases are being redrawn as islands are disappearing. Yet many on continents are not even aware of where these islands are located, what their names are. Never mind the fact that their very existence is so seriously and immediately threatened. Our guest, Christina Gerhardt, is Associate Professor of the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Senior Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Barron Professor of the Environment and the Humanities at Princeton University. Her environmental journalism has been published by grist.org. The Nation, The Progressive, and The Washington Monthly. Her new book, Sea Change, interweaves hard science with inspiring personal stories and raises awareness of how the survival of the islands and their people matter to us all. Hmm. Thanks for being with us, uh, Christina. Thanks so much for being here on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Bert.
0: Well, let's start with where these islands are. How many there are and some of the names?
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks for the, the opening and bringing attention to this really important issue. So in Sea Change and Atlas of I, Islands in a Rising Ocean, my new book, I look at 49 islands around the globe. There's obviously many more. Mm -hmm. And even some of the 49, they're not all island nations, but of those 49, the ones that are island nations, even some of those consist of thousands of tiny islands within a large archipelagic nation.
0: Right. So many of them. I I just, and I, is there any kind of sense of of how many people uh, live on these islands?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I haven't totaled the population of the islands or the landmass of all of the islands in the atlas. Um, they vary. Most of them are very tiny. Mm-hmm. Most of them are sparsely populated. So some of them have a population of a, a small town in, in New Hampshire, for example. Um, they'll have like 16,000, 35,000. Uh, people living on them. Others, uh, such as Singapore, are very uh, mm. populated, very densely populated. So some of the islands included ha- are some of the most densely populated regions in the world. So there's a lot of variation here. There's also variation in their in their geography. So there's mainly uh, around the world. There's two different kinds of islands. They're volcanic islands or high islands. That, as the name suggests, are a bit taller. We also have low-lying island nations or atolls, and some of those are mere feet above sea level rise. But to cycle back to some of the things you mentioned in your opening, what really inspired my book project is a growing awareness of the fact that islands figure, for people who are continental land mass dwellers, they figure in a certain way um, because of literature we've read mm-hmm. or because, you know, their vacation Uh, locations, but they really figure in a certain way. So if, you know, if one can think about all of the the various literary texts coming to us from, oh, I don't know, Robinson um, Mm -hmm. Crusoe, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe from the 18th century, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, or even more recently, Golding's Lord of the Flies from 1954. And then there's all these Greek texts that I cite in the opening, Plato to Pliny the Elder. In these texts, what I really noticed is often you have, especially the the novels, the more recent ones, you have someone coming from the West, typically a lone white Western male, who has an idea to, I don't know, set up a colony, set up a harem, something, and Mm. it always goes awry, right? And I I teach, as you mentioned, in Hawaii, and I'm, I'm reading the poetry and the literature of, my, in many cases, my colleagues or fellow islanders from around the Pacific, and I was taking note of how concerned they were about sea level rise, but their voices weren't part of the conversation. Uh. So that, that issue of sea level rise, its urgency, and then representing it from uh, the, the point of view of islanders was really the starting point for this book, Sea Change.
0: Interesting, and you mentioned Singapore, and that brought me back to my oldest brother's, uh, former father in law since passed away, but he was in the British Army. And back then, certain islands were important. They got on the map because they were important militarily to the mm-hmm. Western white man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never mind their actual identity. Here in the continents, there's a, certainly, as there should be, a growing concern about global warming. It's certainly increasing. But our timetable is not that of island nations you address. It's far more dire there, and certainly the low-lying ones, not the volcanic ones. You say entire island nations, their histories, cultures, and languages could be lost. What's the timetable there? How soon? I mean, we don't even know about this.
1: Yeah, right. So so the issue is is really one of, of sea level rise and its increased impact. So just uh, yesterday, a new study was released that found that, that Greenland's ice sheets were melting more quickly than had previously been estimated. Now, these studies come up consistently. I had to consistently update the science for this book. Um, the main sources of sea level rise is the melt of the glaciers at the poles, so specifically at, at Greenland, which is covered, about 82% of it is covered uh, with ice sheets. Um, so Greenland's ice melt is a main source. I opened the book with Greenland for that reason. And then at the other end of the globe in, in Antarctica, the Thwaites Glacier at the South Pole is another source of sea level rise. The other reason that sea level rises is is because of increased ocean temperatures. So we've been hearing a lot in the science about the shift that is predicted to take place this summer at the latest by the fall from La Nina that we've been in for the last three years to El Niño. Now the issue with that is La Nina for the last three years has been keeping us at relatively cool temperatures. So we're gonna shift to El Niño, it's gonna increase those temperatures. But in the last eight years that we've had La Niña, we've seen record-breaking heat temperatures. So that's what the cooling effect, we're seeing these record-breaking temperatures. If we're going to have those increase with the return of, of nino we we're going to see some incredible temperatures. And we often think about, because again, many of your listeners might be continental and even landlocked, yeah. um, land dwellers, but when we hear about these increased air temperatures, we have to think increased air temperature is more melt at the poles that I mentioned previously, is increased ocean temperatures, and the ocean has been absorbing most of the CO2 emissions, and it's not going to be able to do that with increased temperatures. So there's a real interlocking of these kinds of effects. Now to come to your question of how badly impacted our island nations, The studies that we used uh, for sea change, we we drew on the science of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. They put out a report every five years that has the latest science. There's hundreds of scientists involved. And they say that we're going to have about a foot of sea level rise by 2050. Wow. And we're going to have, yeah, and about three feet by the end of the century. And some of the low-lying islands that we're talking about are a mere six and a half, like the Marshall Islands, six and a half feet on average above sea level rise.
0: At a, a, it's kind of hard to picture. I mean, six and a half feet, that's, that's that's virtually nothing. And I don't know really anything about the Marshall Islands. I suspect they were somehow involved in the Second World War, but that's all I know about them. And what, what, Tell us about... I mean, these cultures and whole languages could mm-hmm. be lost. Tell us about that a little bit, please.
1: Yeah, definitely. So part of my, my project in Sea Change was to really bring to readers and to your listeners in this interview to really uh, bring to the fore the histories and the cultures of these island nations from around the world. Because I I think in order to care about some of, we have enough scientific studies, I realized uh, that document the impact of sea level rise. The headlines tell us every single day an update, as I mentioned previously, about the new measurements for for glaciers melting in Greenland or the the projected forecast for sea level rise. The issue is really, I think, a need for more understanding of the communities the frontline communities that are most impacted and i'll tell you a little bit more about the marshall islands but i want to thread back to another impetus for this study so you mentioned i'm an environmental journalist i cover the u.n climate negotiations annually they're two weeks long they take place in november The location shifts and what happens is 198 nations get together And they talk about whatever they need to weigh in on. That's, you know, the issue of the day at the UN. When you're there as a journalist and you're listening to those 198 nations weighing in individually and as part of cluster nations. So in UN speak, there's like the least developed countries, the LDCs, there's the Africa group, there's the Alliance of Small Island States. What you get over the course of the two weeks that you're there as a journalist is a really intense, vivid sense. Because before they weigh in, they'll say, um, I'm going to weigh in, but right now here's what's going on in my home country. So last year it was Pakistan, a third of the country was underwater, 3,000 people died, there was billions of dollars in damage. So you get a vivid sense of what's going on, and then I looked at the newspaper headlines and I was like, wow they're all focused on the. us-china standoff and I I want to be totally clear I don't think that's unimportant but this is where I realized frontline communities do not have a seat at the at the media um, table they do at the negotiating table at the UN but they're not covered by the media and that's why I wanted to interview these frontline communities and share their histories and their voices so in terms of the Marshall Islands, um, this, is, this, con- this island nation consists of a lot of tiny islands that are often a mere dozen yards wide by one mile long. So they're, they're incredibly tiny. The um, entire population of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, it's this archipelagic nation that has 1,100 islets, five more major islands, that the entire population is 78,000 people. Um, it spread out over a million miles of ocean space. And uh, it is is match it's matrilineal. It's a uh, large proportion oh, nice. indigenous, eighty five percent, yeah, indigenous. Uh, similar figures for Greenland. And its former head of state, Hilda heine was uh, who's now a senator, was forced to declare a state of emergency uh, twice in recent years in two thousand and eight because uh, the main island Majuro, was flooded. Also in 2014, because it was flooded. They have too much water. They also don't have enough. Mm, so sh- mm-hmm. they also had to declare a state of emergency because of drought. Um, Kathy jetnell kieschner is a climate envoy for the Marshall Islands, and she also has a she's also a poet, and you often see that on these um, islands that are in seed change that really the the politics and the poetry or the creative writing is is really inseparable. It's thought together. Um, this is something your listeners might be familiar with the writing of Amitav Ghosh, um, who lives in, in the New York City area, but he, by heritage, is from the India-Bangladesh, that border region, and he's written a lot about the flooding in that area. He's talked a lot about uh, be- uh, unlearning so the need for universities to really start to think disciplines together like science and poetry. So Kathy has a book of poems out and she also talks about sea level rise in some of her writing.
0: Uh, unlearning, yeah. The, the You get my politics. The right wing specializes in that and one of the most important things in the writing of history is unlearning, forgetting, yeah. erasing, <laughs> And what we're talking about here is realizing that, hey, the world is bigger than just the continents, and these islands are not just there for our military purpose, us, you know, we're bigger than them. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Christina Gerhardt, who's got a new book coming out, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. And this may be a little bit off subject, but when I think about islands, I, I, I think about in the early days of the Cold War, I think about the places where nuclear bombs were dropped. I seriously doubt we consulted the people and got their approval for dropping above-ground nuclear bombs. Uh, did we get their their tests, uh, the Bikini Atoll? What were the effects of those explosions, the radiation, etc.? What kind of reparations have been made? And it seems like those islands were just like Oh, let's just drop the bomb there. Who cares?
1: Yeah, that that is a really important issue. So uh, there is the the U.S. Um, alongside France and the U.K. as well as uh, this then the Soviet Union. They carried out nuclear testing over decades in the Pacific, without the the approval, without the permission of uh, the local islanders. So that's a legacy that a lot of. Island nations um, in the Pacific uh, have been exposed to. So the U.S. carried a series of nuclear tests on Bikini Atoll, as you mentioned, um, which is part of the the Republic of the Marshall Islands. And uh, Bikini is the name of that atoll. It's also where the word uh, Bikini mm-hmm. comes from. Mm. But the US also used the Hawaiian island of Kahoolawe oh. and the Puerto Rican island of Vieques as bombing oh. ranges. Right. It's currently considering setting up another one in Tinian, which is in the the Northern Mariana Islands, so just uh, north of of Guam. Um, there's I also have Deal Island in Chesapeake Bay in the book and there's a neighboring island to Deal Island that is off limits because it's been used as a bombing range. I have a, a chunky paragraph. I mean, you mentioned the military installations. I have a chunky paragraph that I kept thinking about taking out of the introduction. I left it in. Good. Um, yeah. I, was thinking, I was thinking of taking it out because it's listy. And, you know, we all learn in writing classes that when you just create a list, there's no argument. And therefore, it's not good writing. But the paragraph lists up the 52 bases or military installations, um, military, Navy, Uh, Air Force, uh, there's there's often different kinds that are on islands um, and they're around the globe. And I realized at some point in talking to friends, um, you know, who are some of them very informed about this issue, some of them less informed. I really realized how important it is for people to know that we have military bases uh, in regions from. Alaska to the Bahamas from Bahrain in the Middle East to the Azores off the western coast of Africa to Diego Garcia um, in the Indian Ocean to, to Cuba and the Caribbean just to name a couple of examples and not go through all 52 but the other reason I thought this was really important is when we were still somewhat in the height of uh, the era of climate denialism, which has mm. shifted now, I would say to you know, thankfully gone out out of climate denialism, but more to unfortunately to dithering. Um, given the urgency of the issue, mm. that we have to rein in CO2 emissions by 2030, like this decade, that's not good. But I uh, recognized at some point while I was living in Hawaii, teaching there, in 2018, the U.S. Department of Defense commissioned a study to ascertain how impacted its quote-unquote assets on islands so installations uh-huh. on islands uh-huh. would would be by sea level rise and i thought well this is really interesting yeah. they're really onto this fact they're commissioning a study but that also indicates how much of a financial risk or liability this issue of sea level rises for them they're also you know, one of the major uh, sources of CO2 emissions from the U.S. We often don't parse CO2 emissions this way. We often go by industries measured differently. You know, we'll go with aviation or shipping industry or something. But we don't really parse. It'd be interesting to see a pie chart from, you know, Department of Education to Department of Defense for CO2 emissions because the military is definitely top there.
0: Oh, I am sure. Oh, it amazes me; they don't seem to to care. And yeah, you know, it's it's as with so many things, attitude counts. And there are an awful lot of Americans who, you know, when they see the network news, yeah, of course it's about America first. Who cares about the other countries? Well, we're all in it together. And maybe that's yeah. one of the things that your book is uh, is showing how it really does matter to us. And we'll talk about that before this uh, discussion ends. Um certainly the US didn't consider the nations where they, you know, drop nuclear bombs as equals nor as neighbors. You look at quote how striking common bonds are among island among native islanders around the world. The distinctive ways of being that come when people must learn to live with their neighbors because there's literally nowhere to go and how movements to preserve island culture and traditions and promote island cuisine, which I'd like to try celebrate, island spirit. Talk about that, please.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that question. One of the, the things that I realized quickly after moving uh, to Hawaii to take up the position at the University of Hawaii is that there there is a sense of relationship among islanders in different regions. So Uh, Hawaiians often feel a sense of relationship to uh, the Philippines, to uh, Guam, to the Northern Mariana Islands, but certainly to Guam, to um, Puerto Rico, and one could include Cuba um, in this list, too, because of the U.S.-Spanish Wars. Those are all regions that have a relationship to one another because of that historical event. This is why adding the knowledge of history— to the scientific studies to talk about islands and to talk about environmental impacts becomes really important. Um, It's a question I had when I was presenting on sea change at, at Princeton to graduate students and their faculty advisor. The faculty advisor said, you keep mentioning colonialism, why is this so important when we think about sea level rise, which is in his estimation scientific category, or when talking about islands, and I was teaching a course uh-huh. on sea level rise in the islands <laughs> um, to undergraduates at Princeton. I took it, that question to my class the next day because I wanted to see uh-huh. if they knew the answer, given that we were halfway through the semester. And they immediately, one of them raised their hands and said, well, you want to make sure that the solutions you design to address sea level rise doesn't re-traumatize already traumatized people. And I said exactly. So so to come back to your question in terms of islanders' affinities, if you know the history, if you know that the Spanish, the U.S. Um, Spanish War is the reason that islanders in one place feel affinity to another, you know the history. But that's also the history of colonialism or its tender shift from what one calls colonialism, right, the Spanish Uh, to imperialism to the U.S. in these regions. That's the reason why there was this indiscriminate testing of Mm. nuclear bombs in the Pacific, right? And so one of the things that I did to make students aware of this history, so the students when I taught at Princeton, this is similar for UH, the students that I taught are typically in the fields of environmental engineering, environmental sciences, the humanities, which is everything from history to literature to philosophy to art, and then public policy. And I had the students who were not in the humanities, I mean, everybody had to do this, but especially for the students that aren't humanities majors, I had them take a project they were already doing for another class. So it's a public policy or some science project. Um, Some of the students at at Princeton were designing um, drones that could measure methane emissions, which is one of the reasons uh, for... for, um, the climate crisis and global warming. Sure. And so I said, take a project you're already working on. And they were like, oh, great. Prof Gar- uh, Prof. G is what they call me. I said, yeah. take a project you're already working on. They were like, great. Prof G is letting us get off the hook easy. And I said, now tell me how your project has changed in its thinking as a result of your knowledge about the history of these frontline communities and their cultures. And they were like, Oh, because they realized they had to take people on the ground and their experiences into account. And that's, that's the impetus of sea change mm. is really to have us understand the frontline communities. And they're also people who have put forward many of the solutions themselves precisely sure. because the UN hasn't done enough for the global North, which is disproportionately responsible for CO2 emissions hasn't done enough. Yeah. Right. They've, I mean, I'm happy to talk about some of the solutions, but, You know, this is really, the book is solutions focused. There's an area of journalism that's uh, called solutions oriented journalism. There's Uh part of the climate movement that's focused on solutions and our planet needs it. I feel like younger people also really need solutions oriented thinking because they have so many things heaped on their head from the climate crisis to the debt crisis to the financial, you know, economy crisis um, and so solutions is, is a sign of hope, is a sign of optimism.
0: You know, I, I've long thought that people who are most affected by decisions, really, what the heck? If they're involved in that decision-making, you get better results. Happens mm-hmm. almost all the time, but that's not generally the process. Top-down is a the process. There's When you think about the effects of sea of level change, there's so – I mean – Coastal barriers, uh, there's uh, the developed, highly developed coastline of Louisiana, for example, uh, uh-huh. which is, you know, there's been massive unprecedented flooding uh, occurred there. And plants and wildlife and natural barriers against sea level rise, including oyster reefs, coral reefs, and mangroves
1: uh-huh. uh,
0: facing the threat of extinction. And uh-huh. maybe they offer... Solutions to protect our vital coastal ecosystems—things that we haven't wanted to look at—has it been inconvenient or whatever. We we saw what happened when these natural barriers were no longer there. Is there a greater understanding of the importance of such national natural barriers in these indigenous cultures? And maybe you can talk about uh, what what they've learned.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for highlighting some of these these kinds of solutions. So. So a lot of them, um, you know, coral and oyster reefs um, are really ne- are really important natural buffers to sea level rise. Um, restoring mangroves, which you've talked about, is really important, too. Coral reefs are basically uh, to the tropical zone what oyster reefs are to the cooler temperate zone. So I talk a bit about oyster reefs. Um, again, I mentioned Deal Island, Chesapeake Bay previously. Um I talk about them there. Um, other islands that are a bit more in the region of your listeners, if they're in New Hampshire, which I realize they could probably be anywhere. Nowadays. We have a lot of listeners um, <laughs> out
0: west too, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so I do talk about an island, um, Lennox Island, Lanui Manuk, that's off the coast of Prince Edward Island, ah, um, just uh-huh. a bit northeast. Yeah. Um, But but the oyster reefs are really important for protecting coastlines. There's a lot of groups that are involved in restoring oyster reefs because of this. Uh, Of course, they're also a delicacy. So in in New York, uh, in the New York City, Manhattan area, where I'm uh, phoning in today from, the Billion Oyster uh, Project is uh, Mm -hmm. restoring oyster reefs. And oysters have an added benefit that they also filter the water, so they clean and purify water. Um, Both coral and oyster reefs are buffers in the following ways. If water is coming from inland down towards the shore, there's somewhat of a buffer there. Inversely, if you're standing on the coastline and you're looking at water, say sea level rise, but more storm surge, something coming in from Mm -hmm. a storm, a hurricane, Uh, Both coral reefs and oyster reefs are important buffers for that water coming in. So they can slow the water and and it seep up along, uh, up up onto the shore. They have often been destroyed. I think, you know, your listeners can think here of Waikiki Beach in Hawaii. They've often been destroyed because of reasons that you mentioned at the top Mm -hmm. of the hour, which is tourism, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. People want to be in their hotel. They want to be right along a sandy beach, so in Waikiki, for example, there are a lot of coral reefs uh, that are still extant, uh, existent uh, uh, along Good. the waterfront there. But some of them have also been taken, uh, you know, just destroyed or taken out so that we have a really beautiful postcard image, but it's not a natural habitat. Mm. So wetlands, um, restoration of wetlands, um, the forests of mangroves that you mentioned. Mangroves are really remarkable trees. Um that have these long stilts and the remarkable trees because they're some of the few species, uh, a rare species that can survive in really salty water. One of the things that happens with sea level rise is that you get salty water encroaching on islands, and a lot of the islands—not all, but a lot of the islands—in my book um, consist of subsistence farmer and fisher folk, and mm. subsistence means that they rely. On whatever they they fish or they farm for their for, to feed themselves and their families, so they don't walk to the local grocery store to get dinner. They they actually have to go out and fish or you know rely on the agriculture. When you have um, salt water coming in, it upsets the balance of of soil. Basically, it salinizes the soil, meaning it increases the salt content. And the problem with salt in the soil. Is that agriculture can't take it up as you know humans animals also don't like to drink water that's overly salinized. Yeah, right? generally, and, yeah. <laughs> so, so um, on the islands again, a lot but not all on in, of the islands that are in sea change uh, have uh, populations who rely on rainwater for the source of their fresh water. Literally setting up rainwater catchment systems, barrels, these kinds of systems. For their freshwater, their drinking water, the water for uh, humans, for animals, and also for crops. And then there's freshwater aquifers. You don't have a lot of other sources of freshwater on some of these islands. If you have saltwater, uh, sea level rise, saltwater gets into the freshwater aquifers. So again, you're contaminating that freshwater, and it's a very scarce resource on a lot of these islands. And you don't have enough potable fresh water. So that's an added impact of um, of sea level rise is is this saltwater, um, this salinization.
0: For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today is Christina Gerhardt. We're talking about her new book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. And, and I'm wondering about, uh, it, it, it's true that development doesn't, often involve people who are most affected by the development. But I, I wonder if, if you talk about solutions that are being put forward by the islanders themselves, not necessarily individuals, but, you know, communities. Uh, do they d- – d- tell us about if there's some of the, uh, you know, ingenious and perhaps wide-ranging work being undertaken by the islanders to, uh, to do something that's, that's working.
1: Right, right. So thanks for a question focused on the solutions, given how important, um, you know, I think that is. And and they are often being put forward by the islanders themselves. So we talked about some of these solutions uh, just a moment ago, the restoration of coral reefs, of oyster reefs, of mangrove forests. Um, Those all fall into a big category called soft engineering. A buzzword that you hear a lot right now is Uh nature-based solutions. Um, I just read an article that that was published last week about a guy in, in Bangladesh who spends, you know, he has a day job and then he spends whatever other time he has available literally growing mangrove trees and then taking them out and planting them along the coastline and that's his you know one person effort and I think I don't want to individualize this I think solutions are are systemic uh, in terms of where they have the most impact but I also don't want to discount individual solutions and people, you know, I always say action is better than inaction aside from soft engineering. There's also hard engineering, which scientists have been a bit more skeptical about. So some of those solutions include uh, seawalls, the installation of seawalls, the issue with seawalls, which uh, have been solutions put forward on the East coast, um, also on the West coast, also in Hawaii. Uh, The problem with seawalls is if you, install them in an individualized way, say, uh, you know, you're a wealthy homeowner in Hawaii, you have beachfront property, it's at risk of falling into the ocean because of erosion of the coastline. If you put a seawall right in front of your home, it's going to impact the lapping shores, uh, the lapping waves are going to impact your neighbors uh, to, to either side of you. And, you know, That's an issue. If you create seawalls systemically, meaning there's what's called the big U that's being put around the southern tip of Manhattan to protect the Wall Street area. Ah. Uh, They've also put in walls uh, in Venice. If you create a a really Uh large seawall, the costs are prohibitive. They take forever to build, and often by the time they've been built – uh, they're not keeping up with the latest science and predictions. I would uh, really uh, encourage your listeners, if they want to read about, you know, sea level rise and these kinds of things, a little bit more to check out. Uh, Jeff Goodell, he is, uh, his book, um, The Water Will Come. It's been out for a bit, um, but he's a reporter on covering the environment for uh, the Rolling Stone. And then Elizabeth Rush, she has a book out called Rising. Both of them focus on the impacts of sea level rise. Uh, um, in the U.S.
0: Hmm. I uh, yeah. I can imagine this. there's 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 a lot written about that, and uh, you know, it, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, what a surprise! Uh, the various different seawalls. and uh, I was in Venice once. Loved it, and I'm concerned about pff, the rise there. And and So we- oh,
1: it's yeah. There's also, I mean, there's islands too that to, that are talking about raising their entire islands. There are engineers that are talking about. Creating. I mean, the Maldives is building an island from scratch right now to raise it. Yeah, yeah. The Marshall Islands have been in conversation with a Japanese engineering firm about creating an artificial island Um, because you need, I mean, this is how dire things are. You need land in order for your passport to have meaning. Yes. And so if these island nations, the ones that are most at risk, are Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands, and the Maldives – and so, if these island nations are that at risk, they are really, literally in conversation, you know, with firms to build artificial islands so that um. so that they have they have a homeland. Some, uh, the president of the former president of Kiribati, he bought land for his peoples on Fiji so that if things get that dire for Kiribati, which I mentioned is one of the foremost at-risk islands, so that they actually can migrate. He calls it migrate with dignity but there's the whole issue of of managed retreat of you know either moving inland or moving to another island um, that's important to to think about climate refugees is, yes. is a term that's bandied about you know it's not in the u.n convention on climate um ah. on refugees so there's a lot of issues related to this
0: they're they're interesting they This issue has been around for a while. It's not exactly a a, a secret. Climate refugees is not... I mean, there's a lot of that going on, you know, all over Mm -hmm. Africa and and not just from the seas, but from, you know, the, the droughts that are happening. A lot of climate refugees... And, the, and mm-hmm. the U.N. isn't doing that. They did, as you point out, the U.N. did succeed in pushing for a funding mechanism for loss and damages to be included. What, what does that mean and why, how far is that from uh, you know, recognition of actual climate refugees?
1: That's, yeah, the loss and damages was a really big success uh, last year at the UN climate negotiations. This is something, and it wasn't, re- this part uh, of it wasn't really covered by the media as much as it could have been or should have been. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been something. So, loss and damages, uh, firstly, it refers to either the losses or the damages that frontline uh, communities, nations have experienced. Um, in you know proportion disproportionately in the global South. Although I think it's important to remember that there are inequities not only between nations and geographies, but also within nations. So we have frontline communities within the U.S. But this is to compensate. Uh, nations uh, disproportionately in the global south by the CO2 emissions produced, Uh again, disproportionately by the global north. And it was not agreed to by uh, EU and the U.S., uh, not surprisingly, because Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're more responsible. Um, But there was such a shaming game taking place last fall at the UN that that they finally did agree to set up a loss and damage facility and what wasn't covered by the media is that nations in the global south have been working on this pretty much since these UN climate focused negotiations have been taking place which is for Thirty years. Right now, um, in the news, um, you know, your listeners can look this up. The Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu mm. uh, has, a very small island nation, has brought to the International Court of Justice a uh, uh, request that global that nations in the global North be held financially responsible for. Uh, the disproportionate CO2 emissions that they have have, uh, been pumping into the air. So there's a lot of different movements afoot to hold emitters responsible. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because nations in the global south, on average, have have produced island nations are responsible for less than 1% of global uh, CO2 emissions. And yet they're disproportionately suffering these impacts, right? So this is the reason why. Um, this kind of a movement has been pushed forward Um, in terms of the UN convention um, on refugees. This is, you know, this is a document that's from 1951. And at that time people weren't aware of the climate crisis. It was already starting at that time, but it wasn't uh, something, you know, that we are aware of as much as we are today. And so there has been a push to have the term climate refugees uh, be included and that, you know, would would have some upsides and downsides. I mean, argue that it, that the UN Convention needs to be overhauled to include climate refugees. Um, certainly one can look at different crises that are either civil wars or wars between nations that are going on right now at mm-hmm. all argue that there is either a climate or a fossil fuel resource component to them.
0: Mm. Wow, often is. <laughs> yeah. Think about wars and, and fossil fuel components just a little bit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just a little in the news right now. <laughs> well, yeah, but also, you know, during World War II, I mean, you know, the, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. the, Russia, mm-hmm. the, the old Soviet Union and, and Germany, and it's all about mm-hmm. finding more oil. And, you know, we, we we used to have the, the Cold War. The world was, was defined as, you know, the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. The new competition, of course, I mean, Russia has its own issues. <clears throat> uh, the new competition is the U.S. and China. What does the mm-hmm. sea level rise demand putting aside? Does it demand putting aside political differences, particularly between these two superpowers, not just for the islanders, you know, being nice guys. The U.S. and China—they don't have a great reputation for that. But for the future mm-hmm. of the residents of the coastal cities of both countries, where, where is where is that stuff happening uh, between the U.S. and China?
1: Right. I mean, I think I think this is an interesting question in that you know sea level rise and the climate crisis in general. You know, whether whether one is focusing on sea level rise, drought, or any of the other components of the climate crisis it really raises some some fundamental questions for us about how to work out and resolve political differences because the science doesn't really care about those kinds of differences and the climate crisis requires that we work together to figure out a solution this is the reason why there's a lot of people who um don't really think that the UN is the best route to go. And I Mm. I can understand all of the frustrations. These negotiations only take place – well, they don't only take place annually. The big climate conference takes place annually. There are interstitial meetings throughout the year. Um, But they've been going on for decades. They haven't really resulted in any kind of an agreement that has – move the needle forward this is what the naysayers will argue um and even if an agreement that was really solid was put forward it isn't legally binding and so with all of those criticisms i still think that the un and this comes back to your question i think that the un is an important vehicle for having these conversations because it is the one forum in which it's, it's unlike, yes. the, you know, the G7. It's the one forum in which all of the nations from around the world get together. It's the one forum in which nations from the global north, the U.S., the EU have to look at people from the global south uh-huh. and they're outnumbered. Mm. This is why the shaming, mm, you know, works at the UN. Um, so, interesting so, yeah, the that- question about China, yeah. Or I, Russia.
0: Yeah. I was just going to say, the, the, you know, the old, uh, uh, you know, the superpowers have uh, veto power there, but they're outnumbered. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could say more about that and, and how that can. I mean, I still think I agree with you. The U.N. can be a place. The potential for the U.N. is, is, is much greater than, than what they've done so far. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I kind of interrupted you there. Keep, keep going on what may be possible.
1: Well, I mean, it's really it's the tenacity of of some of the organizers and and lead climate envoys from the global South who have really moved the mm-hmm. needle forward. I mean, Tina Steggy is the climate um envoy from the Marshall Islands. She is one of the key advocates for uh, the the loss and damage facility. I mean, she's by no means alone, and I think signalling out individuals undoes precisely the collective spirit that is what what makes these kinds of Changes happen, but the UN is, is such an important um, vehicle just because of the the numbers game, right? The nations from the global north, north are outnumbered population-wise, uh, you know, number of nations-wise. And so the collective tone is very different there. Obviously, um, you know, nations that are existing within a capitalist system and have more access to financial resources outnumber the the nations of the global south um, in these other very important and powerful ways but you know there too I think there's very important shifts taking place Mia Motley who's the prime minister of Barbados um, last year put forward the Barbados Manifesto, and she's calling yeah. for an overhaul of nothing less than the entire Bretton Woods system that brought us things like the World Bank, the IMF, you know, the World uh-huh. Trade Organization. She's saying that basically the loans that uh, are being offered to nations of the Global South uh, need to be rethought because nations, frontline community nations, cannot repay pay their loans because they have to also deal with the financial repercussions of climate catastrophe. Right. And she's asking for that to be taken into account. And I I was tracking this kind Uh of a a shift. I wrote about this for the nation last fall. Um, Abram Lustgarten who writes for ProPublica a couple years ago, wrote a really great article on this topic in collaboration with the New York times. Um, but, but this is, you know, this is a shift that was taking place at some of the uh, the major financial institutions that I named when they had their annual meetings this spring. And I was really taking note of what kinds of outcome um, was was going to be forthcoming from these meetings. And I think that's, that's an important issue, too. You know, one can talk about the issue of climate refugees and revising the UN Convention, but I think revising and overhauling these um, financial institutions. Basically a lot of, you mentioned World War II, right? These are direct outcomes of World yes. War II and yes. specifically the Nazi era, right? The, you know, the convention on, on refugees and also these financial institutions as the U.S. position shifted on the global market.
0: Whoa, interesting. That That's another big, new, interesting point. And uh, for those who may have just tuned in, uh, our guest today uh, on uh, Keeping Democracy alive is Christina Gerhardt. New book Sea Change: An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, and the decision makers about uh, where the money goes—the old World Bank and the IMF—yeah, they, in, uh, they, how competent they are at what they do already comes into question. And you know, a lot of the—I mean—the the structures that they have uh, are very, very uh, uh, repressive, not necessarily intentionally. And do they? There must be a, a better way, and and that's left over from the from the mid twentieth century, and here we are, well into the twenty first century, the the way of, uh, of financing uh, development and and making it appropriate development, yeah, that's that's got to be looked at, and we don't hear any voices about that. Fascinating, and you you document the science related to climate change and sea level rise, but what are your main goals? is to share the lived experience of islanders and their commitment to protecting their homes and heritage in their own voices. And what about the importance of of this to those of us who are frankly unfamiliar with these island nations, haven't even heard of them? Why is it important to make islands around the globe visible and the plight of their people clear and relevant to everyone in in these big, you know, happy continents? Are are they a a canary in a coal mine for all all of us?
1: Yeah, I think... I, um thanks for the question. I think I think first and foremost uh an interest in you know the 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 islands that are in sea change. I mean to learn more about geographies that we may not be familiar with, the histories and the cultures and the languages of peoples we may not be f- familiar with. I think that in and of itself just having that curiosity and that interest yes. and that expansive uh oh. curiosity about the world around us um you know that right there sh- should be of interest so just you know armchair travel as it were through sea change to some of these places mm. um, in and of itself i also think that the situation of that that some of the island nations are experiencing has lessons uh, for us on in uh, along coastlines around the world so you mm. had mentioned previously um, some of the cities, you know, sure. in, in China, there's coastline communities. Shanghai is, right. is going to be impacted. Guangzhou in China. There's, um, we talked about Venice, Amsterdam, and the Netherlands, which obviously the name, Nether, sure. um, oh, low-lying uh, lands. Yeah, that's I never they're very, that. yeah, interesting.
0: Go ahead.
1: yeah, they're very impacted and, and um, already coming up with some solutions to this. Uh, Lagos in Nigeria is mm. going to be very impacted, like, Ah, uh, the regions uh, in along the Gulf of of Mexico. You mentioned, you know, Louisiana and the the Gulf earlier. When you extract oil and water, which we extract water every day for fresh water, um, that leads to subsidence or subsidence, tomato tomato. That leads to uh-huh. um, subsidence, which is land sink, right? And Oops. so Lagos, Nigeria, is really impacted. Uh, New Orleans is really impacted. But in the U.S., I think one thing, you know, to, to share with listeners is that uh, sea level rise is not only going to impact island communities, but also coastal communities. So in the U.S., it's estimated that about half of the population, about 40 percent, lives in coastal cities um, or states. So in the U.S., that's going to impact an estimated 13 million residents. And in order of impact, that would be in the states of Florida Louisiana, California, New York, and New Jersey. The East Coast is going to be more impacted than than the West Coast, um, the Gulf, and and then the East Coast. But I think, you know, the difference there is, is a really important one. And this I'm coming back here to mentioning that the Marshall Islands, you know, some of the atolls are only a couple yards wide. Mm. If you're living on the continent, you can retreat inland. If you're living right. on an atoll that's only a few yards wide yeah. and a couple miles long, there is no place to go.
0: No place to hide. Well, you know, there's a lot of scary stuff, quite frankly, but I, I, I always like to... I prefer to have a little bit of optimism uh, injected that we're not powerless. What can people around the world who, who care about climate change and global responsibility, you know, we may not mm-hmm. live in those areas, what, what can we do to help the inhabitants of, of these at-risk islands? What can we do?
1: i think one of the things this comes back to your question too about you know why why think about islands or why make this visible like what's mm-hmm. what's the, the project of sea change i think just remembering that we're all connected so the yeah. actions the decisions that inform our daily lives and again i don't want to individualize this because i think the solutions that have the most impact are systemic absolutely but the, the decisions that we make in our daily lives and the ones importantly that we encourage our leaders to make. So, you know, who we vote for or the kinds of nudging that we, you know, do with regard to our representatives becomes really important, not only for our lives, but for the lives of frontline communities that aren't in our neighborhood. Um, Again, there are inequities within our communities. And I don't want to you know pretend that this is only on a global scale because this is between countries and within countries. But our our actions really have effects um, in places that are far away. And we are the ones who are the biggest source of CO2 emissions as a a nation. And so the impacts, if we turn things around in this country, the impacts are not only going to be positive for our country, but also for other nations around the world
0: and and we did start talking about myths and the great myth of america is rugged individualism millions buy into it but it was never really true and i get the sense that the that the challenge of climate change in the islands is it, it takes a lot of different solutions not just one not just individual but community oriented solutions and i think in general you know, community oriented solutions are, are the answer, you know, not just top down stuff. And I think there's a lot that the West still has to learn about the idea of community oriented decisions. And I, I can't help but think that uh, there's a lot that we can learn. Well, uh- go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it was, you know, action is better than inaction. I always say to my students when they feel overwhelmed, um, and I was just reading an article about, you know, the plight of the situation of loneliness or feeling estranged or alienated or whatever. Really? affecting people in this era. And I think just getting involved on a local community level is is something that that people can do. Again, is that a solution systemically to solve this crisis? Part, no, but it has, yeah, it's part of it. And yeah. it just shifts the thinking to exactly the community uh, and communal orientation that you were mentioning.
0: Uh, there's so much to community. And we, we, we rejected that rather strenuously and boy, we've been paying the price. Thank Uh you so much. Christina Gerhardt, Sea Change is the new book, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. And uh, who puts it out?
1: Uh, It's published by the University of California Press. Uh, Your listeners should know that books at University of California Press, uh, Sea Change, my book included, are 40% off this month. The code is MAY40. So just University of California Press, go there, and uh, you can find this book and many others.
0: Well, thank you. And and let's hope for some uh, real community change. we, We can do it. Thanks. It's a big challenge, but we can do it. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: It's been great to be with you, Bert. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course the website keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.